0: Hi, this is Andrea Boydman. I'm the executive director of Osteoscience Foundation, and I'm joined today with our science and education liaison, Dr. Myron Tucker, for the second installment of our podcast series, Generations of Regeneration. We're joined today with our guest, Dr. Simon Young, who's at the UT Health Science Center at Houston School of Dentistry. And uh, Dr. Young is not only a former and current grantee of Osteoscience Foundation, but he also serves on our Vanguard Committee. So thanks, Simon, for joining us today.
1: Uh, Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here.
2: Well, Simon, thanks for being here. Um, As the title of this series goes, uh, Generations of regeneration. We're trying to pick uh, people over the course of the next year in various phases of their career who have uh, contributed or are contributing either clinically or scientifically or both to the area of regenerative um, medicine. I I consider you one of the uh, rising stars. I know you're early in your career, but you've done a tremendous amount. And so we just want people to get to know you a little bit better. And if you'd start and just uh, give us kind of the historical path that you took uh, educationally to get where you are today.
1: Sure, yeah, happy to do that. I guess it's funny that friends and family always joke that my path took a little too long. So, you know, I don't don't think I got a real job till I was, you know, late into my thirties, but uh, certainly I, I grew up in Toronto, Canada. I uh, so I went to uh, the University of Toronto uh, in 1996 to start uh, undergraduate. So I got my B.S. in human biology, and I started dental school in 1999 at the University of Toronto in the School of Dentistry. There, um, during my time there, um, the University of Toronto is a very uh, research-oriented institution, um, and it, it really permeates the culture, not just at the dental school, but uh, you know uh, throughout the entire institution, and even. The residency programs in uh, all the residencies at the dental school uh, require um, each resident to do a master's, mandatory. doesn't matter which one you're doing, like perio, oral yeah. surgery, PROS, all those. Um, and so um, even entering dental school, I already was sort of imbued with that culture. And um, I was very fortunate um, early on, before I even started doing official summer research, maybe uh, the summer just before I started dental school, I had decided to volunteer at the dental clinic um, at one of the major hospitals in town. And the head of the division of oral surgery at the time was someone named Cameron Clokey. And I remember um, the dental students that were rotating through and the residents that were going through that clinic told me about, um, you know, this individual who had, was involved in commercialization of bone grafting products. And he was, uh, you know, he had his PhD and he had, um, you know, had some experience working in the lab of the vaunted, you know, Dr. Marshall Urist, who was, you know, the person who really discovered BMP. So, you know, hearing about that, it sort of piqued my interest right away. Um, And so while I, you know, attempted to try to you know learn about his career and make contact with him I was also very fortunate at the same time simultaneously um, because this clinic had a, had a lot of um, uh, you could say you know dentist scientists going through it the the head of Perio at the same time um, I ran into in this clinic and his name was Howard Tannenbaum and uh, I asked dr. Tannenbaum while I was you know uh, at this clinic volunteering I said can I just come to your lab and see what research is about. Cause to be honest, I had I had absolutely no idea what research was about. Uh, so he said, yeah, sure, go upstairs, see what we do. Um, and it was it was really eye-opening. It was probably one of the more sort of eye-opening experiences I, I had had because, you know, I always had initially thought, um At least from as a student and a teenager going, the dentistry was, you know, all all private practice. And I I didn't even understand that research was going on. And here was a lab full of essentially residents doing their masters as well as, you know, full time faculty, you know, doing research projects. And these were all folks um, by the very nature of of their jobs and the culture at the university were treating patients, but also uh, doing bench research. So I found that you know really fascinating, and so, you know uh, that summer I worked for Dr. Tannenbaum in his lab. Uh, interestingly, starting off with uh, you know bone-related research. So one of the people in his lab was looking at the effect of breast cancer cells and sort of the cytokines that they put out, and how that affects um, the differentiation of progenitor cells into bone. Uh, because you know, as you know clinically, one when, when you know, um, aspect of people unfortunately afflicted by breast cancer is that it can metastasize the bone. Uh, So that was the kind of research that, you know, I'd never seen research and I was immediately sort of vaunted, you know, into this atmosphere uh, of, uh, I guess, learning a little bit about bone regeneration. And because I liked the experience so much, um, every single summer after that, um, as a dental student, I took the opportunity to do research projects, either with Dr. Tannenbaum or uh, that periodontal research group. Uh, And in the third year, I actually started working for Dr. Cameron Clokey uh, in his lab because he was very tied into BMP2 research. Um, And so that was near the end of dental school. And I was already, you know, had gone to the operating room a few times, seen the surgeons there do some orthognathic surgeries and and some, you know, pathological resections. Uh, And I told them I was very interested in, you know, pursuing a career in oral surgery, but, Um, also seeing how to get tie in research and just by coincidence that summer um, a dental student two years ahead of me named David Lamb who happens to be I think he's the chair at, at SUNY right now he was two years ahead of me and I asked Dave, I said, uh, What are you doing this summer? And uh, he said, hey, I'm going down to Houston. And you know, me, I didn't know anything really what was going on south of the border <laughs> in Toronto, to be honest, mm-hmm. but I said, What's what's in Houston? And he said, Oh, they have like, the, you know, the largest medical center in the world is in Houston, they have a huge oral surgery program, he said, you should sign up for it next summer. So I said, Okay, well, maybe, you know, I'll, I'll consider that. So I, you know, I set up an externship. Uh, and of course, you know, as part of uh What all externs do—you sit down with your chair—and I I sat down in Dr. Wong's office one day, and Dr. Wong says, "Okay, Simon, you know what? What are you planning to do with your career?" And I told him, I said, "You know, I'm I'm very interested in your program, but uh, I want to find some way to incorporate, you know, research uh, into what I'm doing because I've enjoyed my my summer experiences so much." Uh, And he said to me, "Well, what are you interested in specifically?" And of course, you know, at the time, being a student, you really have no you really don't have much depth of knowledge in the research world. So I thought I was being all sort of, you know, smart. I said, well, and this is around the time that VEGF was a a popular target in cancer. I mean, I remember seeing it, these anti-angiogenic factors, they were were really being looked at in Time Magazine. It was was out there, it's sort of in the public eye. And I said to Dr. Wang, I said, you know, Dr. Wang, they really need, you know, there's all this like research going on, targeting uh, the blood vessels in, in cancer. What if someone did the opposite? What if we, you know, tried to uh, regenerate vessels, you know? And I thought this was a new, a new idea. <laughs> and he goes, well, you know, people have been actually, be, you know, they've been very interested in this for quite a while now. And I actually have a collaborator at Rice University named Tony Mikos. Uh, and if you're interested, you know, uh, we've always, been interested in in bringing on residents who uh, who would like to formally um, do research as part of their residency. Would you be interested? And I said Rice University. Never heard of it. <laughs> it sounds like a food. And of course, I didn't realize it was a top ten bioengineering <laughs> university. And of course, Tony Mikos is one of like you know the preeminent you know researchers in tissue engineering. You know, um, but I didn't know that at the time. So I was given this incredible opportunity to be you know put into this environment and mentored. So. Um, you know, so when I applied down uh, to Houston's program, uh, we embarked on this on this unique, um, you know, I guess I was a bit of a, of a you know, like a, the first generation person to do this, where it was going to be a combined um, oral surgery MD-PhD program. We did have one resident uh, before us, uh, Dr. Zahid Lalani, who had done his PhD and his uh, oral surgery residency at UT. But to sort of uh, build this collaborative bridge with Rice University in the bioengineering program, uh, I actually did my PhD through Rice and uh, you know no one, no one had really done that so we had to sort of figure out the parameters of it but you know Dr. Wang being incredibly flexible uh, we, we made it work and so I, I essentially spent from 2003 to 2008 my time was spent as a graduate student in the department of bioengineering Um, Just like every other grad student, I I did all the same classes, I did, you know, like partial differential equations and fluid dynamics and all sorts of, you know, engineering courses. Uh, And I was, I wasn't allowed to do clinical care, but I did, you know, go to morning rounds and, you know, back then Dr. Wong used to have them on Saturdays too. So we had, you know, Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturday mornings. So I I got a lot of oral surgery just through osmosis, I guess you could say, you know, And, and I did do some months of my internship that year in 2003. Uh, and then when I was finishing up my PhD, I, um, I went to med school around 2008 uh, and then did all my off-service rotations and then came back on oral surgery around 2011. Uh, and by that time, you know, I picked up a forceps, and I was like, what is this? What is this metal object? Because <laughs> it's been a long time. But, uh, you, know, I, you know, and uh, so I you know, came back on service, you know, completed all my oral surgery rotations. But, you know, importantly, and obviously... By the time, you know, 2010, 2011 rolled around, I already finished my PhD, but, you know, I I was already thinking what the next steps would be, you know, I mean, how do I, you know, what do I want to do? What do I want to do with my career? Because I knew um, I wanted to do uh, more training after residency, um, and I really wanted some advice to figure out, you know, do I want to do a clinical fellowship, or did I want to do a research fellowship? So I actually gave Brian Schmidt a call. Um, and he gave me some advice and he said, listen, you know, what's, what's your true passion? Um, and I said, I, I love research. I, you know, I love basic science research. And he said, well, he goes, you know, if you do a clinical head and neck cancer fellowship, because you're not going to have dedicated time in a lab for two years, you know, you're really going to be in the OR all the time. So he said, if you're interested in doing, you know, your research, you should really do a research fellowship. So I took that advice to heart. And when I talked to Dr. Mikos, you know, my, my PI and my PhD, he said, listen, what would really help your career is applying for something through the NIH called uh, an independence, a Pathway to Independence Award, something also called, it's known as a K99. And uh, essentially what you do is you, you write up a research proposal and if you win it, uh, um, it allows you to be funded for two years as a postdoc. Uh, and then when you go for your first real, you know, real job, as faculty, it gives you three years of funding uh, as well as dedicated research time. So I was very fortunate to uh, get that award. And I, um, when I was looking at what to do with my postdoc, um, you know, I, I started searching around, and uh, I I felt that David Mooney at Harvard would be a really good fit because my PhD was involved in using um, polymers and controlled release systems for sort of timing the dose and the release kinetics of growth factors, multiple growth factors to encourage bone. But one really good piece of advice that Dave Mooney gave me before I even started a postdoc with him uh, was that he said, you know, you can do uh, a bone tissue engineering postdoc if you want, but he goes, You know, now's the time when you're doing your postdoc to really explore new avenues like while you're under mentorship, because it's going to be hard to just break into a completely new area, you know, once you're, you're, once you're a PI. So I took that to heart. And so what we ended up sort of spinning out was, uh, you know, so while my experience beforehand in Tony Mikos' lab was bioengineering and, and biomaterials for heart tissue engineering, I segued into uh, biomaterials for cancer immunotherapy, which on its face seems like a completely different area. And it, and it was challenging. But the cool thing is, is that the one thing they have in common is that you know, for tissue engineering, for bone tissue engineering biomaterials, you're essentially uh, using your implants to program stem cells to do, to do something else. So a progenitor cell to become bone. And this new paradigm that Dave Mooney's lab had just developed around You know, around 2009, 2010, was that you could use these same biomaterials but program immune cells to go kill cancer now. So it's it's essentially just cell programming with devices.
2: So Simon, where were you physically when you did your postdoc?
1: So I went over to uh, the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences at Harvard. So I was in Boston, uh, and I would spend um, sort of most of my week on the Longwood campus at Harvard. It's called the the Institute. So um, that's um, sort of located right by their medical school, and a couple days of the week, I would be sort of on the Cambridge campus at Harvard.
2: And what about uh, clinical activity during during that time?
1: I was very fortunate that uh, Dr. Wong, just you know, being this incredible mentor, he realized, uh, and and I, I mean, we all, you know, I think we both realized that it would be very difficult to just. Um, sort of waltz into a new city and say, give me some awar time to just random people at hospitals. So uh, what Dr. Wong set up for me uh, was that I was able to get a, um, like a part-time clinical position at UT even after I left. And what I did, I, I actually flew down to Houston about once a month and stayed for a week at a time and staffed cases. And it was great, and and I was very fortunate because because I was already part of the system for like ten years as a resident. You know, getting the credentialing done was like relatively easy. So so for three weeks every month I would I'd be in Harvard, you know, doing my thing, and then for the last week of each month I flew down to to Houston and did cases with the residents. So that was a lot of fun.
2: Well, that was that's quite an educational journey. <laughs> it took a while, but it was it's been great. I mean,
1: I, one thing that Dr. Wong and I always say that. Um, uh, I mean, of course, not every day is like rainbows and puppies, you know. But I mean, honestly, I, it was such an incredible experience that I went through. Uh, I I can't even really remember bad days per se. I mean, it was such it was such a wonderful experience because you know there was it was constantly learning new things, doing new things, and sort of pushing the envelope. So I, I had a very good educational experience down here in Houston. That's
0: very cool. Right. So so having the research focus and, and having the time that you spent, um, on the, the K99, Mm -hmm. um, what made you decide to come back to oral maxillofacial surgery?
1: Oh, Oh, as, as opposed to, I mean, in Houston specifically, or just like the specialty in general,
0: the specialty in general.
1: Yeah. Um, well, I mean, to be fair, I mean that was that was decided as soon as I finished dental school. So as soon as I finished dental school, okay. um, I entered um, you know this combined oral surgery MD PhD program with the understanding that I would finish this residency. Uh, but okay. you know, I mean, and of course, to be honest with you, you know, when you're embarking on on such a long path, it's it's hard to really read what your future is gonna be, right? I mean, I love, I mean, you know, we all do this as faculty. You know, our candidates come in and like, well, where do you see yourself in 10 years? And and that's a fair question. But I mean, for myself, I mean, I I knew what degrees I would end up with, but I had I had very little idea of like what my day to day would be because there weren't really many people uh, for me to to emulate right i mean right. when you you can sort of count on your fingers um how many oral surgery faculty in this country have um have a large part of their um, time dedicated to research you know right. so it was it was hard for me to really gauge how i would even be able to do that and and i'll be honest with you i had you know i had some people almost not not i wouldn't say discourage me but there were some folks who i told my plan to and they said well how are you going to work that out because many departments really are relying on clinical revenue so how will you you know manage to like kind of fit yourself into these departments when 75% of your time is is doing research so right. you know um, that was a that was a consideration and a question mark for a long time
2: well as well, a related question to that mm-hmm. um, every not everyone but a, a lot of people in our specialty have other roles besides just clinical practice. There are people that are in the administration of Mm -hmm. uh, our society, our large societies. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are people that are politically active, people that uh, teach more, and then someone like you that is a teacher, a researcher, and a clinician. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the questions that a lot of people want to know is how, how can you keep yourself proficient as a surgeon, And be a top-notch researcher, and I know this is an hour-long question, but in in a (laughs) ninety in a a ninety-second kind of summary, how do you make sure you're good at all those things?
1: Yeah, no, that no, that's a really good point. I mean, I think that's something we all struggle with. I mean, that's that's sort of the easy answer, right? And um, I would say. You have to be, at least This is the way I see things, you have to be realistic about your goals and, and and maybe take into consideration what your interests are, right? So for myself, you know, I work at the county hospital on Tuesdays, which is very trauma-based and, you know, it's, there, there's dental alveolar in trauma. Um, we don't do that much orthognathics, um, you know, and there's some benign, you know, there's some benign pathology um, and there's no head and neck cancer. Not that I'm qualified to do head and neck cancer malignancies anyways, but certainly, you know, my personal feeling is is that if you're in academia um, and you really want to make your mark on the world, you have to focus. You know, I, I think the days where someone was good at everything, in my opinion, those days are, are are gone. You cannot be the best orthognathic surgeon in the world as well as being the top-notch tissue engineering person in the world. I mean, this, having all those things together, I, I just feel like each Each of those components has become so deep, it's next to impossible to just, there's not enough time in the day to do all those things. And so for myself, at least, you know, I, 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 I've said, you know what, we are going to dedicate, you know, myself and my department has given me the opportunity to really dedicate 75% of my full time to running the research operation. And, and there are days where I feel that's just sometimes there's, that's not even enough time, you know, and, and then. When that happens, you also need to be given the resources to hire the right people, right? I mean, I, I'm too busy now, for example, to be you know, pipetting every single experiment, right? So I have to have the resources, whether it's through grants or startup funds or, or even the foundation, to be able to hire people and train them. Um, the way I see things is, is I almost, I have a, uh, it's almost like a small, like a startup company. You know, it's almost like I'm an entrepreneur. And we come up and, and our, our currency is ideas, right? We come up with new ideas, test those ideas. And if our clients, which, you know, our largest client, if you want to call it that, is is the government, the federal government. So if the NIH likes our, our ideas. When we pitch them, then they give us the funding uh, to execute what our plans are and our metrics. Um, um, and so that's been really nice for me. While on the other hand, you know, I do, I'm able, you know, because of, under the good graces of of my chairman to still be able to operate on Tuesdays and have the dedicated time for that as well as doing private practice on Fridays. And Mm -hmm. um, I have to say that, you know, it's a very, it's a very difficult uh, combination to sell sometimes to administrators because there's all these things going on. And I have to say, I'm very fortunate being in a place that's as large as Houston because Uh, the institution is able to support someone such as myself who has that sort of um, work mix, to put it simply.
0: Wow. No, it's, um, you know, I, I just to touch on what you were talking about a moment ago, I remember when you and I first met, I think it was December of 2014 and I was in Houston visiting Dr. Wong and he said, there's somebody that you have to meet and you're really going to want to get to know this person. And he was absolutely right. But um, you know, I think that from the very beginning, you and I've talked a lot about, um, some of the challenges in research, specifically in funding research um, in funding research in oral and maxillofacial surgery. So, um, you know, what what do you sort of see as you know, aside from research funding, which we know is always a challenge, but you know, what what do you see are the you know the next uh, you know the, this the hurdles in in terms of getting to from from here to there in terms of the the foreseeable future, specifically in regenerative medicine.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I think that can be broken up into short-term goals and, uh, and personal goals and then sort of long-term goals for the field, right? So, you know, when you break it down, like for, as a day-to-day researcher, right, the short-term girl, goals are uh, survival. I mean, I hate to put it <laughs> like that, but i say, I mean, you know, and especially with the coronavirus and, and funding the way it is. But, you know, from a day-to-day operation standpoint, when you run a research lab, again, it's like a small business, right? So I have... Uh, I have a student, you know, we have, um, you know, we have three research staff. So those are personnel that, you know, have, you know, families to feed and and lives to live. So, you know, they have to take care of their salaries. Then, you know, my research support, because for example, you know, um, very, not very often, would you find uh, someone in my position where the university will support you 100% for your, you know, for your uh, efforts, right? You have to get grant funding. So that's just like a personnel cost, right? Then of course, all the experiments that you wanna do, right? So for example, we've we've started getting into a technology called single cell sequencing, right? And one, like literally two little mice for this experiment cost us about $12,000, right? That's like one experiment. So So you can imagine, right, when you're doing and we have multiple um, experiments going right and, and projects. So in our lab, it's not, it's not a tiny lab, but it's not a large lab either, but even, even with our blend of NIH funding. So at the top of my head, we have uh, two collaborative R01s. I have a U01, I have an R21, I have an R56. So I have five NIH grants, which feed our lab as well as like three foundation grants right now. And even then, you know, you're constantly, um, you're constantly fighting for money, right? Because as your projects complete out, you can't just sit on your laurels and say, "Ah, oh, I'm Don't <laughs> have to do any work anymore." Because you have to have your metrics, right? Because you promise, you promise to people who fund your research that you're going to come up results, publish those results, and then move on to the next step. So it's a constant sort of—I um, don't call it battle—but you're you're constantly always having to, to keep the research operation going, right? So from a from a very short-term operational standpoint. You know, that answer is simple, right? You're writing grants all the time, you're getting out data, uh, you're publishing, and so you can continue to publish, put in more data and get more grants, right? Now, that's a very short, that's a very sort of short-sighted view because that's mainly just being, you know, surviving as a young researcher and growing the lab, right? uh long term i would say in terms of you know your impact on people your impact on the field and your impact on on you know other clinicians uh is you know is the question really comes down to is what you are doing useful to your specialty or you know put simply you know when i die will i be able to look back on my life and say that i actually did something that was of use to our specialty or the public at large and and you hope so because it's called the National Institutes of Health because they're trying to, you know, improve health for people in this nation. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, one uh, again, looking at sort of the long term picture as as you and I have discussed many times uh, is that it's so expensive to get technologies to market. I mean, people throw around these words and I think I said it in my and my little webinar where, you know, on average now drugs to get to market are anywhere between one and $2 billion. right? And so, and it's not because one drug costs $2 billion, it's because so many candidates have to be screened through, you know, just through just like the, the, the dish first in vitro, then, you know, maybe 250 candidates make it into animal trials, right. And then maybe only 10 successful candidates get past animal work, right. And then you apply to FDA and you have to go through, you know, all the different phases, you know, safety, then efficacy, then multi center trials. So of course, every of each one of those steps is costing, you know, like millions of dollars and and the drugs are dropping out. So only one is left. Right. And so the real question that, you know, I think most researchers in my shoes have is, you know, how early, number one, where do you insert yourself in that continuum of, of, of research? Are you going to go really, really basic? Are you going to go really translational or or are you going to go clinical? Right. Uh, And then if you are going really early, you know, how how will you get that idea to into human beings right and and i was asked that very question by dave mooney when i started my postdoc interestingly i sat down i remember i i sat down in his office the first day and it says and he's like hey simon so you know uh he goes when you finish up here he goes what kind of research do you want to be doing and i said what do you mean by that dr mooney and he's like no he's like really he's like because you know he says at the time, you know, he was saying he was doing he was a large chunk of his research portfolio. And, you know, this is like a highly, you know, one of the most successful people I know when it comes to grant funding. He was doing things uh, that are like 15 or 20 years out, right? So it's, it's very, very useful, interesting research, uh, and it's high impact because it's novel, but it's not ready to put into a human being yet. Right. So
2: Simon, if it, looking, looking ahead, then, mm-hmm. let's just, I know you're involved in a lot of different things. Sure. Um, and obviously, this is a very hypothetical and never going to happen question. But yeah. if you can only pick one project that you're working on or one thing that you think will significantly impact oral and maxillofacial surgery 15 or 20 years from now, whether that be, you know, immunotherapy for cancer or developing a way to grow blood vessels that we've never seen before or to produce bone, um, you know, kind of in a, in a nutshell, 20 right. years from now, like, well, you're not going to die 20 years from now, but you know, <laughs> when they say, just like, you, you know, yeah. you started and uh, you mentioned Marshall Urest, he will always remember yeah. for BMP. Um, and he had that in his sights for a long time. So, um, when somebody looks back at Simon Young's career says that, you know, the one thing he really did was.
1: Right. Yeah. So, I, so if I'm allowed to, I think there's two things that I'm excited about right now. Um, so, so while we have a, you know, a multitude of, of projects going on, I'll, I'll sort of split my answer to the two things that, that really kind of, uh, I'm passionate about. So I'll talk first quickly about the cancer immunotherapy angle, and then I'll quickly talk about you know the bone regeneration angle. You know, right now I think there's a lot of excitement about cancer immunotherapy, especially in head and neck cancer, and how you can get durable results. Um, but one thing that no one is really looking at at all uh, is the biomaterials aspect and how to deliver these therapies directly into tumors. And I think we're perfectly poised. Uh, to be in that space because in head and neck cancer, obviously a lot of what we do is accessible in the oral cavity. You know, these are not like pancreatic cancers where you can't like dig in there very easily. And so if our technology can mature to the point where we can take an already approved molecule, but make it um, more effective purely by the carrier that I think that would be like really impactful.
2: So delivery system, delivery
1: systems. Exactly. The second thing that I'm um, really sort of interested in right now is a project I have with uh, Vinu Veranazi at UT Arlington, um, where it's, it's interesting, Vinu just he came, we met through Tony Mikos' network, um, and he has a, a background in semiconductor engineering. And so at first I was like, why is a semiconductor person um, you know contacting an oral surgeon? But you know, one 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 technology that he has, which I found really fascinating is a special coating that can be coated onto titanium that can potentially regenerate or enhance bone regeneration and also decrease inflammation. And the reason I'm excited about that is because the technology is very easily translatable. So this is not a technology that you would have to, you know, spend 20 years developing because, you know, this is, it's based on sort of technologies that the semiconductor industry already uses. And um, I can't elaborate on companies we've spoken to, but we've already spoken to some companies about the ability to translate this technology sort of into their pipelines. And you know, imagine for a second, Myron, where all of us in Oral surgery are so familiar with using titanium plates and screws. But if there's a way to just simply coat these every single plate and screw coming out of the factory, to now make it almost a bioactive implant to help bone regeneration, that would be great, and it's it would be simple because to the surgeon it's invisible, right? You say, you say to your you know your rep, hey, just passing the plate and passing the screw, and to you it looks no different. But there's a coating on it now, which makes it sort of uh, enhance bone regeneration, and that's what I'm really excited about too.
2: Well, um, you know, you um, you're, you're early in your career, but uh, um, we're looking forward to a lot of. Big things from you in in, in the future, and uh, you you have a interesting pathway to where you are, and you have a, kind of a starburst future ahead of you. Lots of different arms going in in different directions, and um, uh, we really appreciate you spending the time with us. Andrea has a question for you about us going forward with these series. Sure.
0: Uh, Well, really, my question is is just, um, you know, you had created this wonderful webinar that's going to be available on our website. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there anybody else that you can suggest that we should reach out to to similarly create a webinar and uh, an accompanying uh, podcast piece?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean. So, you know, to be fair, um, I would say a lot of what I talked about on that webinar was stuff that we we're very interested in, uh, like at the bench, you know, um, and in our animal models, because that's a lot of what I do. That's where I live. But one one thing I think that would be really good to emphasize are clinical trials, you know, and I think, um, you know, I love, I mean, I love going to the Amos meetings just like everyone else does. Uh, but what, I, what I'm, you know, I feel our entire specialty would really benefit from increasing um, our involvement. And I mean, like, across the board, across the country, really in doing uh, multi-center, you know, clinical trials. Um, I think that's really the way to go. And especially when I um, started floating around these these cancer research circles and you go to an AACR meeting and you see that everything is data-driven and there's so many trials going on, um, you know, I think it'd be really good to highlight people who are interested in doing trials or or have run trials of relevance to tissue engineering. You know, um, now one person. I mean, certainly I have to give a shout out uh, to some of our other young faculty because this is what we do for each other. But I mean, certainly James Melville is you know an excellent surgeon, um, and he's very tight. And you might be able to uh, take a look at this later. But uh, we recently had um, a case series in JOMS, you know, looking at clinical tissue engineering. So you know, while us in the lab, we love talking about sort of techniques that might make it into people in a few years, you know, on the clinical side, you know, we are already doing what we like to call clinical tissue engineering. So it's still using that paradigm of, of a scaffold and cells and a growth factor. But you know, we're using stuff that any surgeon can just pick up right now, right? You can buy your infused right now, you can call up your rep and get your BMAC, your bone marrow aspirate right now. And you can combine it with your, you know, your allogeneic bone right now. Uh, and using these techniques, you know, we're, we're hoping to like, you know, collaborate with other institutions and run trials on the ability to use this tissue engineering, uh, as well as some of our other interests, such as, you know, uh, the use of um, allogenic nerve grafting, you know, uh, from various companies. Um, so I think in terms of young faculty, you know, I think, you know, James Melville would be a great person to, to highlight. I think also on the science, on the, on the science side, you know, speaking to really well established people who have, who, who interact with clinicians or oh, it's always a good thing. So, you know, I mean, Bob Goldberg, obviously he's a very busy guy, but he's, he's definitely top notch. Um, Dave Moody himself is also, I mean, he's been in the tissue engineering game for a long time and they have a translational pipeline at the Vies Institute, um, as well. Right. Uh, my mentor, Tony Mikos, I mean, he's been working with Dr. Wong for a long time. And he is obviously extremely well connected in the tissue engineering world. Um, so, I mean, those are, those are sort of like the names that, that come to mind, but even young people, you know, that have been, that have been involved in, in oral surgery research, such as um, like Robbie Shanti, you know, Robbie Shanti at Penn on uh, I mean, she's also interested in nerve regeneration. So, um, you know, there's lots of people, um, you know, I think in our specialty who um, not only do work on the tissue engineering side, like in, in the clinics, but also doing research as well. So, you know, um. Hopefully, you'll be able to you know, maybe get them on sometime and, and pick their brains.
0: Yeah, that, those great. are great suggestions. Thank you so much. Sure.
2: Well, Simon, we've really enjoyed uh, spending part of the afternoon with you. And uh, thanks so much for uh, taking up your valuable time. I think uh, we've probably pulled you away from about three <laughs> experiments, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love these talks. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. Oh, this right. is
0: great. Have Thank you. A, Thank you very break. much for joining us. All right. Thank you. To learn more about Osteoscience Foundation, visit osteoscience.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn.